Deanna was right. It's time to celebrate our listeners who have a birthday today, and the following listeners will be celebrating. George Conway of Des Moines, Mary Catherine Johnson of Ames, Bonnie Kennedy of Fort Dodge, Nora Jean Davis of Des Moines, and Shyla Beatty of Council Bluffs. Happy birthday to all of you. If today is your birthday and you didn't hear your name on our list, give us a call and let us know. You can reach us at area code 515-243-6833. And you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Now, it's time to turn to the obituaries, and here's Deanna. Thank you, Scott. There are just four today in the paper. Suzanne Marie Lyle of Des Moines was born in Langsburg, Michigan, to Slater and Evelyn Williams on October 10, 1930. She passed on to heaven on October 31, 2023. Growing up on the family farm with her younger sister, Ardeth, during the Depression, taught her to be strong during the challenges of life. She graduated from Michigan State University with a degree in elementary education. She taught fourth grade for 37 years, ending her career at Four Mile Elementary School. She loved reading, writing, knitting, sewing, road trips, shopping for gifts, greeting cards, laughing with friends, visiting with family, and a good cup of coffee with cream. We all valued her noble ability to forgive and to love unconditionally. She leaves behind three children, Christy, John, and Jeannie, seven grandchildren, 11 great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren. A private celebration of life will be held at a future date. The family would like to thank the staff at Ramsey Village of Des Moines for their remarkable kindness. Ward Harold Wehrman born February 21, 1967, in Marshalltown, to Henry Hank Wehrman and Francis Casey Burks, died at home on November 3rd in Des Moines, Iowa, at the age of 56. He is survived by his beloved cat, Muncher. Also, his parents, Hank and Kathy Wehrman, and Casey Burks, his sister, Wendy, Ray, Wendy Ringenberg, married to Ray, Nieces and nephews, Francis, married to Pete Burke. Jackson, married to Terry Ringenberg. Winter, married to Christopher Heinz. Aunts, Christine, uh, known as Tina Wehrman. And Jacqueline, known as Jackie Vandeveer. Stepsister, Lynette Burks. And stepbrother, Tad Burks. Preceding him in death were his grandparents, Harold and Leon Wehrman, and Frank and Frankie Decker. Memorial services will be held at Robach Newhouse Funeral Home in Belle Plaine, Iowa, at 10 a.m. on Thursday, November 9th, with inurnment fo- immediately following at Oak Hill Cemetery in Belle Plaine. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10 a.m. Memorials may be made to the family. Online condolences can be sent to the family at newhousefuneralherservice.com. Dwayne 
Alan Dixon of West Des Moines, died at home with his wife, Frederica Johnson Dixon, at his side on November 1st. Duane was an only child born in Centerville, Iowa, to Max and Vera May Mitchell Dixon on June 18, 1946. Services will be at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, November 8th at the Northwest Community of Christ Church, 3,000 Street, with a luncheon to follow in the basement. Graveside services will be in Sheraton, Iowa, at the Sheraton Cemetery, and memorials are requested to Northwest Community of Christ Church. For expanded obituaries, go to fieldingfuneralhomes.com. And finally, Patricia Welch of Des Moines, formerly of Maxwell and Ankeny. She joined her beloved husband, Keith Welch, in heaven November 3rd. More information can be found at merlehayfuneralhome.com. Scott, back to you. Thank you, Deanna. I'll go back to the front section of the register on page 7A with a story entitled Trump Blasts Reynolds as Disloyal for Her DeSantis Endorsement. This is written by Brianne Fannin-Steele of the Des Moines Register. Former President Donald Trump lashed out at Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on social media Sunday, saying her endorsement of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be, quote, the end of her political queer career, end quote. He goes on to say, if and when Kim Reynolds of Iowa endorses Ron DeSanctimonious, who is absolutely dying in the polls, both in Iowa and nationwide, it will be the end of her political career in that MAGA would never support her again, just as MAGA will never support DeSanctimonious again, end quote, Trump said, unleashing a string of nasty messages on truth social posts. Two extremely disloyal people getting together is, however, a very beautiful thing to watch. They can now remain loyal to each other because nobody else wants them. Reynolds was set to formally endorse DeSantis at a Monday rally in Des Moines, according to sources close to both governors. It is a major coup for the DeSantis campaign, which is hoping to signal to caucus goers and donors that he is the chief alternative to Trump going into the rest of the presidential primary. According to an October Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll, Trump leads among likely GOP caucus goers with 43%, picking him as their first choice. DeSantis and former Unitedness in second place at 16%. It remains to be seen whether Reynolds can significantly move the needle in DeSantis's favor, but she remains deeply popular among Iowa Republican caucus goers, the Iowa poll shows. In August, the poll found that 81% viewed her favorably, including 50% who viewed her very favorably. Another 18% viewed her unfavorably, and 1% were not sure. In the October poll, which did not ask about Reynolds, 69% of Lucky Clockus goers say they viewed DeSantis favorably, and 26% viewed him unfavorably. Another 5% were not sure. Trump is viewed favorably by 66% and unfavorably by 32% with just 1% not sure. Reynolds had initially ruled out endorsing anyone ahead of the caucus, saying she preferred to welcome the full slate of candidates into the state, but she opened the door to the possibility this summer, suggesting in interviews that she might wade into the race. 
Reynolds has appeared on the campaign trail with every presidential contender, including hosting most of them in a series of one-on-one conversations at the Iowa State Fair in August. But she appeared to strike a strong early relationship with DeSantis, introducing him to Iowa during his first trip to the state in March and appearing frequently with him and his wife, Casey. Their cozy relationship has irked Trump, who lashed out at Reynolds on his Truth social platform in interviews and on the campaign trail. In another Trump Truth social post on Sunday, Trump took credit for Reynolds' 2018 election victory, saying he opened the, the position for Reynolds, who, when he appointed Governor Terry Branstead to serve as the U.S. ambassador to China. Reynolds, who was lieutenant governor at the time, took over for Branstead and was elected in the year 2018 and again in 2022. Trump took credit for being the sole reason that Iowa Republicans retained their first-of-the-nation status in the party's presidential nomination process. Although Democrats fought to replace Iowa at the front of the presidential nominating calendar, there has been no such public effort among Republicans. But if Trump is re-elected, he would have substantial sway over the calendar as leader of the party. Despite all this, Reynolds remained neutral on endorsements, and she is now America's most unpopular governor, and Ron DeSanctimonious is second, Trump said. Okay, on page four of the main section, vote offers election security warm-up, improvements as well as obstacles come into play. This is from Rachel Looker and Joey Garrison, Dateline, Washington. Voters head to the ballot box this week in several states, and the outcomes might reveal more than just winners and losers. Election experts told USA Today several state elections, which include governor races in Kentucky and Mississippi, could preview challenges that might arise during the 2024 presidential election. That includes whether states can overcome challenges to recruit poll workers, adapt to a voting law changes, maintain high voter turnout levels, and combat the spread of disinformation. Tommy, Tammy Patrick, the CEO for programs at the National Association of Election Officials, said, There are elections all around the country that I think serve kind of as a bellwether for how next year will go. Most elections experts say that voting has never been more secure in U.S. history. Nevertheless, David Becker, executive director of the nonpartisan Center for Election Innovation and Research, said election losers like former President Donald Trump in 2020 are increasingly spreading disinformation about rigged or stolen elections. He said, I think it will be very interesting to see the degree to which losers of elections continue the trend. Here's what's top of mind for election officials ahead of 2024. First is a stress test. Off-year elections, which tend to have a smaller turnout than federal races, are opportunities for jurisdictions or states to make changes in their election administration process, said former Utah County Utah clerk Josh Daniels. We're going to see basically a stress test, if you will, of new things that jurisdictions are doing, he said, of elections held this week. Nobody's going to do something radically new and different in 2024 if they haven't at least tried it in 2023. Many jurisdictions are making changes and improvements in preparation for 2024, he said. 
such as looking at ways to increase speed when it comes to reporting results, reduce wait times at polling locations, or upgrade voting machines. Next, turnover of election officials. Finding and recruiting poll workers is a challenge ahead of every election cycle, said Patrick from the National Association of Election Officials. But since the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, it has become even more challenging to engage with community members and find those who want to participate in the voting process. Election officials nationwide are not only worried about recruiting enough people, but also hiring those who have the right motivations for getting involved in the election process. Patrick said, there's all sorts of efforts that could in fact truly cause problems in our electoral process. In addition to poll workers, high turnover of local election officials also poses concerns because of the loss of institutional knowledge and experience in administering elections. More than 160 chief local election officials left their jobs after the last presidential election. Sean Morales-Doyle, director of the Brennan Center Voting Rights Program, pointed to the heightened harassment of poll workers, particularly in the 2020 presidential election, as one of the main causes of the mass exodus of poll workers. Morales-Doyle said, I wouldn't be surprised if there are ramifications from that turnover, and it's something that we should be concerned about. Next, changes to voting access laws. States across the country have passed a near-record number of restrictive voting laws in 2023, with at least 11 states enacting 13 restrictive laws, according to a June 2023 roundup of voting laws from the Brennan Center. The only year that saw more states pass voting restrictions was 2021, when many Republican-led states responded to Trump's claims of election fraud with legislative action. These changes can be a double-edged sword, often confusing voters who aren't aware of the changes in their state, said Patrick. A troubling trend, according to Morales-Doyle, played out in the 2022 election, the outright refusal of some election boards and commissions to certify election results. That includes local county races in Pennsylvania, New Mexico, and Arizona, he said, Maybe we'll see this in 2023, but I hope not, he said. Next, spread of disinformation. Disinformation in the election process isn't new, but Patrick said there's a new threat to how it can spread. Artificial intelligence. In the past, those looking to interfere with an election have created fake websites to mine, to mimic official election websites. But AI could be used on another level, producing a phone call that sounds exactly like a Secretary of State sharing incorrect information about polling locations or producing fake videos of a local election official giving false information about deadlines for casting ballots. The question is going to be how that plays out, how it's attempted, and whether or not voters can discern what is true and factual from what is not, said Patrick. And finally, loss of voter confidence. Republican voters have waning confidence in the legitimacy of elections, according to polls, a movement amplified by Trump and his allies who have rejected results. 
Morales Doyle said, there is still a strong and disturbing election denial movement in the country that is sending a very damaging message to American voters that suggests that our elections are unreliable or insecure or rigged. Julie Wise, the elections director in King County, Washington, added that the conversation around election administration also has changed dramatically in recent years. She said, with some folks, there's almost an automatic assumption of guilt or corruption or conspiracy just by virtue of working as an election administrator. Scott, back to you. Thank you, Deanna. I'm going to flip over to the Nation and World Extra section and read the top story there, which is entitled, Netanyahu says Israel open to little pauses. Prime Minister says there will be no ceasefire without hostage release. This is written by Matthew Lee and Zeke Miller of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. After more than a week of public pressure from the U.S. for humanitarian pauses in Gaza, Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday allowed that his government might be open to only little pauses in its assault on Hamas. The Israeli leader sought to play down differences with his country's most vocal backer on the world stage at a time of rising scrutiny of the sharply rising civilian toll of of fighting. Netanyahu spoke after President Joe Biden made a direct appeal to him nearly a month into the war, seeking to rally support behind securing even limited relief for civilians in the spiraling conflict. The back and forth spotlighted the challenges facing Biden and his administration as they seek to manage what is emerging as one of the defining foreign policy crises of his presidency. The U.S. thus far remains focused on keeping the fighting from exploding into a wider regional war and pushing for limited steps to alleviate civilian suffering. But it has remained steadfastly behind Israel and Netanyahu's goal of ending Hamas's control over Gaza even as the death toll in Gaza reached 10,000, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. Biden used his first conversation with Netanyahu in eight days to repeat in private his public calls for lulls in the fighting to allow civilians to flee Israel's campaign to crush Hamas and for humanitarian aid to flow to hundreds of thousands in need. We consider ourselves at the beginning of this conversation, not at the end of it, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said when describing Biden's conversation with Netanyahu. So you can expect that we're going to continue to advocate for temporary localized pauses in the fighting. Hours later, Netanyahu, in an interview with ABC News, ruled out any widespread ceasefire, but suggested an openness to little pauses, though it was not clear whether some kind of small stoppage had been agreed to or whether the U.S. was satisfied with the scope of the Israel commitment. Well, there'll be no ceasefire, general ceasefire, in Gaza without the release of our hostages, Netanyahu said when asked about Biden's call for humanitarian pauses. As far as tactical little pauses, an hour here, an hour there, We've had them before. I suppose we'll check the circumstances in order to enable goods, humanitarian goods, to come in or our hostages, individual hostages, to leave. But I don't think there's going to be a general ceasefire. Biden's engagement with Netanyahu followed Secretary of State Anthony 
Antony Blinken's frenetic weekend of travel that took him from Israel to Jordan, the occupied West Bank, Cyprus, Iraq, and, uh, and on to Turkey to build support for the Biden administration's proposal for the, the humanitarian initiatives. All this work all of this is a work in progress, Blinken said before leaving Turkey. We don't obviously agree on everything, but there are common views on some of the imperatives of the moment that we're working on together. CIA Director William Burns also was in the Middle East, meeting with intelligence partners and leaders of several countries, a U.S. official said Monday, speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss Burns's travel plans. The U.S. intends for his discussions to reinforce American commitment to intelligence cooperation, especially on terror and security, the official said. The flurry of U.S. diplomacy came as Israeli troops surrounded Gaza City and cut off the northern part of the besieged Hamas-ruled territory. Troops were preparing to enter the city, where they were likely to face militants fighting street by street using a vast network of tunnels. Casualties will likely rise on both sides. Asked whether the toll gave the U.S. pause for its staunch support for Israel, Kirby said, I think we all need to remember who they're fighting. He referenced Hamas's October 7th incursion into Israel that killed 1,400 people, mostly civilians, starting the war. He insisted no country would tolerate such an attack without a swift and aggressive response. Kirby said the U.S. was having frank conversations with Israelis about trying to reduce the civilian death toll, but it was not directly involved in Israel's targeting decisions, nor was it helping develop the country's operational plans for its invasion of Gaza, home to 2.3 million people. Blinken said pauses in the war would allow for a surge of humanitarian aid to Gaza and the release of more than 200 hostages captured by Hamas while also preventing the conflict from spreading regionally. We've engaged the Israeli on, Israelis on steps that they can take to minimize civilian casualties, Blinken said before leaving Ankara. We're working as I said, very aggressively on getting more humanitarian assistance into Gaza. We are very focused on the hostages held by Hamas, including the Americans, and we are doing everything possible to bring them home, he added. As Blinken's meeting with Turkish Foreign Minister Hakan Fidan got underway, dozens of protesters from the from an Islamist group waved Turkist and Palestinian flags and held up anti-U.S. and anti-Israel placards outside the foreign ministry. Police earlier in the day dispersed a group of students marching toward the ministry chanting, Murderer Blinken, get out of Turkey. Also Monday, about 150 people rallied outside the U.S. Embassy in Ankara, carrying a large banner that read, No to Genocide. Blinken did not meet with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who has been highly critical of Netanyahu and an outlier among NATO allies in not expressing full support for Israel's right to defend itself. Turkish officials, speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss the talks, said Fidan had urged Blinken to prevent the targeting of civilians in Gaza and their forced displacement and also press for a full ceasefire. 
Blinken's mission, his second to the region since the war began, has found only tepid, if any, support for his efforts to contain the fallout from the conflict. Israel had rejected the idea of pauses while Arab nations were demanding an immediate ceasefire as the casualty toll soared among Palestinian civilians. Arab states are resisting American suggestions that they play a larger role in resolving the crisis, expressing outrage at the civilian toll of the Israeli military operations and believing Gaza to be a problem largely of Israel's own making. U.S. officials are seeking to convince Israel to, of the strategic importance of respecting the laws of war by protecting non-combatants and significantly boosting deliveries of humanitarian aid to Gaza's beleaguered civilians. It remained unclear, however, if Netanyahu would agree to temporarily rolling pauses in the massive operation to eradicate Hamas or whether Outrage among Palestinians and other supporters could be assaged if he did. Jordan and Turkey have recalled their ambassadors to Israel to protest his tactics, and the tide of international opinion appears to be turning from sympathy toward Israel in the aftermath of October 7th to revulsion as images of death and destruction in Gaza spread. From Turkey, Blinken headed to Asia for a series of events in Japan, South Korea, and India, where the Gaza conflict will likely share top billing with other international crises, including Russia's war on Ukraine and North Korea's nuclear weapon program. Thank you. Front page of Nation and World Extra. Abortion rights debate has dominated this year. Here are the races to watch. This is from Robert Yoon, Associated Press. Out of Washington, the most watched races in Tuesday's off-year general election have all been dominated by the ongoing debate over abortion rights. From a re-election bid for governor in Kentucky to a statewide ballot measure in Ohio to state legislative elections in Virginia, access to abortion has been a frequent topic in campaign debates and advertising as it has since the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in June of last year overturning Roe v. Wade. So here's a look at three major races and how abortion has shaped each contest. Kentucky Governor, Democratic Governor Andy Beshear, seeks a second term in a heavily Republican state that Donald Trump carried twice. The GOP nominee is Daniel Cameron, who succeeded Beshear as state attorney general. Beshear has called the state's restriction abortion extremist, the law extremist, for not allowing exceptions in case of rape and incest. He also vetoed a proposal banning abortions after 15 weeks. I'm going to abbreviate some of these. Ohio Constitutional Amendment on Abortion. Ohio voters will decide whether to amend the state constitution to protect access to abortion services. In August, voters rejected a measure that would have made it more difficult to approve Tuesday's abortion proposal. That contest has, was seen as a proxy fight on reproductive rights and received national attention. Virginia General Assembly. Control of both chambers of Virginia's state legislature is up for grabs, with Republicans holding a new narrow majority in the state house and Democrats leading the state Senate. Either of both chambers could flip and possibly give Republicans full control of state government. That would clear the way for Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin to implement a ban on abortions after 15 weeks 
with exceptions for rape, incest, and when the mother's life is endangered. Mississippi Governor, Republican Governor Tate Reeves, is running for a second term against Democrat Brandon Presley, a state utility regulator and cousin of Elvis Presley. Democrats held the Mississippi governorship for almost all the 20th century, but Republicans have controlled the office for the last 20 years. Out of Pennsylvania, Republican Carolyn Carluzio and Democrat Daniel McCaffrey are the nominees to fill a vacant state Supreme Court seat that could play a significant role on voting-related cases. And I think I need to pass this back to Scott by now. Yes, you do. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been myself, Scott Splavik, and Deanna Snyder. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place. Welcome back. Your new readers are myself, Dale Finnegan, and my partner, Doug Kretzinger. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Here's Doug with our next article. Thank you, Dale. We're going to begin with the opinion page, USA Today. There's a couple on here. I'm going to read this one. It says, Case Can Aid Domestic Violence Victims. As gun owners, we urge justices to make sure abusers are disarmed. It is written by Olivia Troy and Abra Belke. Olivia Troy is executive editor of 97%, 
formerly served as a senior advisor to Vice President Mike Pence and in a number of senior national security roles. And Abra Belke, an attorney and a 97% board member, formerly served as an NRA lobbyist and has provided pro bono counsel to domestic violence victims. Those are the folks who wrote this article. As the nation reels in the aftermath of yet another mass shooting, this time in Lewiston, Maine, many Americans, both gun owners and non-gun owners, are asking how we keep firearms out of the hands of dangerous people. Against this backdrop, the U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to hear oral arguments in a case that will decide the fate of modern gun laws designed to do just that. Though Lewiston shooter Robert Card and Zaki Rahimi, the defendant in the case on the Supreme Court docket Tuesday, share little in common in terms of background or criminal history. What unites them is the question of when an American should be denied access to a firearm. In Card's case, he was experiencing a mental health decline that alarmed his family and colleagues. Rahimi was accused of domestic violence and the subject of a restraining order after multiple documented violent incidents involving firearms. At the heart of U.S. versus Rahimi is a decades-old federal law that prohibits the possession of a gun by those subject to a domestic violence protection order. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down the law over concerns about due process because it failed to recognize historical equivalence. Some context. In a June 2022 decision, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, the justices established a new test that determines what's a constitutional what's constitutional based on whether there was a similar law at the time of America's founding. As a former NRA lobbyist and a career national security official, we cheered the Bruin decision, which ruled unconstitutional a New York law mandating concealed carry applicants demonstrate proper cause. To obtain a perfect, to obtain a permit. Law enforcement should not be able to deny someone a permit based on subjective guidelines. But the philosophy behind the decision has significant implications that pose a threat to every gun law on the books. Now, our nation's highest court will decide just how literal the justices intended their Bruin test to be. What our research found about how gun owners feel. As leaders of the gun safety organization, 97%, we are working to reduce gun-related deaths by including gun owners in the solutions. Our research has found that 76.9% of gun owners support prohibiting gun possession by people subject to a domestic violence restraining order. And that's why we submitted an amicus brief imploring the Supreme Court to reverse the Rahimi decision. The goal of 97%'s brief is not to discuss how a victim or survivor of violence is five times more likely to die when an abusive partner has access to a gun. We do not talk about Rahimi's well-documented background of violence as a suspect in five shootings. While these are certainly valid arguments, our focus is on due process and historical precedent. 
as they are the markers by which the Supreme Court will make its decision. Before a restraining order is issued, the court is required to give the accused a chance to defend themselves. After that hearing, they are stripped of their right to possess a gun only if the court rules that they pose a threat. The loss of rights is temporary until the order expires, and the order can be dissolved if new evidence becomes available. These orders are issued for proven acts or threats of violence. The greatest predicor, uh, predictor rather, of future violence is past violence, and our 97% research has found that the most deeply held principle among gun owners regarding gun laws is that people at high risk of violence should not be able to own a gun. Those who oppose the law have said that they believe only convicted criminals should be disarmed. Our brief shows how a criminal conviction is not required for the loss of other constitutionally protected liberties, such as when citizens are placed on the no-fly list and cannot travel by plane. When do 77% of domestic violence-related homicides occur? Not to mention that criminal proceedings often take months or years, leaving victims unprotected at the very moment when they are in the most danger, 77% of domestic violence-related homicides occur at the time victims leave their abusers. Though a restraining order resulted from modern laws that recognize women's political rights and the threat of domestic violence in a way that did not exist in the founding era, our brief cites numerous examples of how the founders prevented groups they deemed dangerous from possessing guns. We are two gun owners who've loved, championed, rather, we are two gun owners who've long championed the Second Amendment and are skeptical of restrictions, but domestic abusers who pose a credible, proven threat must be disarmed. Restraining orders provide strong due process protections, and they're consistent with founding-era restrictions. Like policies such as universal background checks, they're forward-looking solutions to modern-day problems that also protect the Second Amendment. We call on the Supreme Court to reverse the Rahimi decision. Failure to do so will have far-reaching implications, including in cases like that of the Lewiston shooter. Lives are hanging in the balance, and the Supreme Court's backward-looking test is threatening the chance to save them. Dale? The second opinion today is titled, Aid to Israel, Ukraine Doesn't Mean Ignore Home Front. Investment in our domestic issues helps maintain our global rule. This is written by Susan P. Suzanne P. Clark. In my meetings with heads of state and foreign leaders from around the world, I hear a common question. Will the United States disengage from the world? When I talk to CEOs and small businesses, they all want to know, how much more geopolitical uncertainty will we face? All have good reason to be concerned. The lessons of history remind us that isolationism and neglect of international affairs can have far-reaching and long-lasting consequences that are not limited to foreign shores, but have a direct impact on American society and prosperity. This is why the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is endorsing the effort to provide emergency supplemental funding to secure the southern border of the United States and to support Ukraine 
Israel, and Taiwan. Not only is it in our economic and national security interests, it is essential to safeguarding the principles of democracy and free markets that the Chamber has stood up for for 111 years. And I will note here the Chamber is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, who Suzanne P. Clark is president and chief executive officer of. Since World War II, the United States has played the leading role in helping people in other nations who wish to secure their own democracy and free markets. We have been repaid the monetary costs of our efforts many times over by the enhancements to our own prosperity and security. Today, the democracies and free markets are under attack abroad. Perhaps the most painful lesson of the 20th century is what happens in Europe and Asia impacts America directly, and we ignore it at our peril. These threats exact a toll on the United States that will only grow if we avert our eyes, threatening our own national and economic security. Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine and the heinous terror attacks on Israel and the loss of innocent life argue powerfully for additional U.S. security assistance, continued close coordination with our allies, and sustained American leadership on the world stage. The United States also should continue to uphold its decades-long commitment to provide security assistance to Taiwan, which is consistent with the long-standing U.S. One China policy. Here at home, another essential principle is under threat. The rule of law is being undermined by the failure of our federal government to fulfill one of its most basic functions, securing our border. The myriad shortcomings of our legal immigration system and the historic crises on our southern border and in cities around the country cannot continue to go unaddressed. Much needs to be done beyond this emergency border funding to confront our nation's immigration challenges, but providing these additional resources is a critical first step on the path toward securing our borders, preventing further human suffering, and meeting America's economic needs. We applaud Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell for calling for American leadership and pledging action in the Senate and President Joe Biden for putting forward an emergency supplemental to address these changes. Scrutiny, debate, and amendment by members of the House and Senate is important and will improve the President's proposal but it must lead to decisive bipartisan, bicameral action on a meaningful package. Most of the funds will end up being spent right here in the United States. It is manufacturers here, across 38 states, who are building the supplies used by our allies. President Franklin Roosevelt dubbed the efforts of American business and workers the, quote, arsenal of democracy. In a world of ever-growing threats, these investments in our expanded domestic capacity will improve America's future security. We will continue to work with Congress to find ways to tackle the debt and deficit. But to be clear, the expenses associated with securing our border and defending democracies are not the root cause of our problems. If we fail to make these investments now, It will cost us far more in the future. 
The United States is a strong and capable nation. We can address the domestic challenges that require the attention of our elected leaders and support and defend those who share our commitment to democracy, free markets, and the rule of law. And in this moment, we must do both to secure our strength at home and our standing in the world. Again, that opinion was written by Susan P. Clark, President and CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Des Moines Register Sports section on the front page. I'm going to read this one. The headline of this story is Cyclone Women Win Season Debut versus Butler. It's written by Tommy Birch. The dateline is Ames. The young Iowa State women's basketball team got its first bit of experience during an exhibition game against Truman State last week. But Monday's matinee at Hilton Coliseum marked the first true test for this mostly new Cyclones basketball team. Iowa State showed its inexperience but showed even more of its potential during an 82-55 season opening win over Butler at Hilton Coliseum. Nyamur Drew scored a team-high 19 points for the Cyclones who kicked off the season with a day game victory. The uh, The one thing I told our staff is... Our freshmen are talented and they play very hard, said Iowa State coach Bill Fenley. And when they're in the game, something's going to happen. It might be good for us. It might be good for them, the other team. But something's going to happen. And that's freshmen. And when you're playing three, four, five of them at the same time. Excuse me. It was, it was a much-needed strong start for Iowa State's roster which is full of fresh faces with transfers and incoming freshmen getting a big bulk of one playing time after the team's roster underwent massive changes in the offseason. The transition wasn't expected to be easy, even with such a talented freshman class coming in. But the new batch of Cyclones showed they were ready for the challenge, overcoming multiple stretches of struggles before rolling to an easy win. Iowa State went on a 6-0 run in the second quarter and built a 12-point lead on a jumper by Addie Brown. The lead quickly disappeared as Butler scored the final five points of the half and cut the lead to one in the third quarter. At halftime, Fenley preached to his team the importance of limiting turnovers and making the Cyclones plays, and they they successfully did that. Uh... Sorry, they successfully did that and were rewarded with a 53-point outburst in the second half. Iowa State went on a 12-2 run in the third quarter and pulled away. A three-pointer by freshman Kelsey Jones gave the Cyclones a 57-42 lead at the end of the quarter. And that was more than enough for Iowa State to coast to an easy victory. Transfer is Nell Nataboo scored 14 points and trailed, rather tallied, seven rebounds. Jones finished with 13 points and eight rebounds. Brown, another freshman, chipped in with 11 points, seven rebounds and five assists. Performance was another glimpse of the potential the freshman class has and why there is so much excitement surrounding those players. We have a great group of freshmen that want to be able to be coached and stuffed so they're ready at all times to do whatever is needed, Dew said. D-I-E-W is the spelling of that. I hope I have it pronounced right. 
Nymerdew makes a huge impact in her return. Iowa State got a big boost of experience for its season opener. Dew, who missed the team's exhibition game, was back in the starting lineup. Dew, who has been dealing with a knee issue, according to Fenley, was kept out of the Truman State game, but likely could have played if it was an official game. The Cyclones certainly need her veteran presence this season, especially with starting point guard Emily Ryan out indefinitely with what the school called a health-related issue. It showed Monday with Dew delivering an impressive performance in the third quarter, scoring five points in a 12-2 run. She ended the day with nine rebounds and three assists against the team she played for a, for before transferring to Iowa State. Nye was the best player on the court for us, Fenley said. Kelsey Jones becomes a key contributor off the bench. Kelsey Jones had an impressive performance during Iowa State's exhibition by pouring in 20 points. She followed that up with another big performance Monday, scoring 13 points, including several key three-pointers. Jones came off the bench with Dew returning to the starting lineup. It didn't stop her from having a huge impact again. Jones wished a big three at the uh, swished a big three at the end of the first quarter to give Iowa State a 16-12 run. She then knocked down two more in Iowa State's huge third quarter. Kelsey was really good, Fenley said. She hadn't practiced for four days. Her foot was a little sore after Truman, so we rested it, and she could go today. Iowa State was dominant in the paint, outscoring Butler 42-26. to The biggest contributions came from Nadabu, 14 points, and freshman Audi Crooks, who tallied 8 points and 5 rebounds. Nadabu got the majority of playing time, but Crooks mixed in, providing a strong style of post-play the Cyclones don't always have. We haven't coached physical, true back-to-the-basket post-players since ever at Iowa State, Finley said with a laugh. Dale? And in sports on television, today you can watch college basketball at 5.30 p.m. on BTN, Florida Gulf Coast at Indiana, at 6 p.m. on FS1, Stony Brook at St. John's, and FS2, Lemoyne at Georgetown. At 7.30 p.m. on BTN, you can see UNC Asheville at Michigan. At 8 p.m., there are three games you could watch, ESPN is showing Baylor versus Auburn in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. FS1 is showing Florida A&M at Creighton. FS2 has Fort Wayne at De- DePaul. And in women's college basketball at 6 p.m. on ACCN, Charlotte is at NC State. There are a few college football games tonight as well. 6 p.m., you can watch Ball State at Northern Illinois on CBSSN. ESPN is showing college football playoff top 25. ESPNU has Central Michigan at Western Michigan. And then at 6.30 p.m., ESPN2 is showing Ohio at Buffalo. And there are two NHL hockey games tonight, 6.30 p.m. on TNT, Detroit at New York Rangers, and 9 p.m. is TN- on TNT is New Jersey at Colorado. I have just a couple minutes. I'll just read a couple paragraphs about men's college basketball and the Bulldogs. Bulldogs Tucker DeVries and Darnell Brody are set for the season. This is written by Alyssa Hertel. 
Drake men's basketball leaders Tucker DeVries and Darnell Brody underwent transformations ahead of the 2023-24 season. Brody upped his conditioning and lost about 30 pounds before playing the best basketball of his career in the 2022-23 season. He continued to focus on his mental and physical health this offseason and said he is in the best shape of his life. DeVries, the reigning Missouri Valley Conference Player of the Year, definitely worked on his basketball skills over the last few months. Even as one of the best players in the league, there are always things that DeVries can improve. But his biggest step forward, according to teammate and roommate Connor Enright, was his cleanliness around the apartment. I always get mad at him for leaving his dishes in the sink instead of putting them in the dishwasher, Enright joked after asking DeVries if he could share that tidbit with the register. But he's been better this year. We've improved in our dish cleaning abilities. Roommate drama aside, the uh, article continues with a look at how DeVries and Brody prepared in the offseason to help Drake have another successful season. Uh, Let's see. The Bulldogs' opener against Lipscomb on Wednesday will mark the start of Brody's fourth season at Drake, but it's his sixth year of college basketball, having participated in two seasons at Seton Hall before coming to Des Moines. So in the offseason, the 6'10 forward needed to obtain a waiver from the NCAA. The process, Brody said, was straightforward, and once approved, he solidified his decision to return for one last hurrah. And we'll have to cut that article off there so that we can get in Dear Abby before we uh, end our broadcast. And Dear Abby, recording may be worth more than a thousand words. Dear Abby, I have some advice for your readers who write regarding problems with how others behave badly or are verbally abusive or inappropriate toward them. Hopefully it will help someone. I suggest recording video of the offending individual while it's happening and then showing them the video later when they are calm, sober, and receptive. If the behavior is drug or alcohol-driven, this can show the person they're not fun and funny. They are obnoxious and offensive. I'm certain I would have quit drinking years earlier had I been able to see how I acted while intoxicated. This advice could also work with a relative you are concerned about with regard to dementia or Alzheimer's. You could show the video to their doctor rather than make generalizations about their behavior. Telling your husband to talk to his mom about how critical or rude she is to you puts your husband on the spot, and it's still a she-said-she-said situation. Maybe your mother-in-law has no idea how she sounds, but she should. If a picture is worth a thousand words, a video is worth even more. Sign Gotcha in California. Dear Gotcha, I'm printing your letter because I think in some cases it has merit. However, videoing someone who is in the middle of a rant or some other socially unacceptable activity could cause some individuals to become violent. Stop videotaping me! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, and parentheses. That's why I have to add that if one chooses to do this, they should be aware of the risk. Dear Abby, another one. I'm a 35-year-old woman who is married to a 25-year-old man. We currently live in the same house as his mother. She lives downstairs. We live upstairs. Thanks to my husband's upbringing, he has a hair-trigger temper. His dad has an explosive temper, and his mother is a narcissist. He's never directed it at me, but his mother sets him off. 
Sometimes I think she does it on purpose because she has some kind of victim complex. I have tried everything to help him control his temper. Nothing has worked. It has become normal for me to end the day with him, with them fighting. I am exhausted by them. If they're home before I go to work, they'll get into some sort of yelling match. When I'm finishing my workday, he'll call me and I'll hear them arguing on the phone. I'm tired of the fighting. It's creating so much anxiety and depression. I have told him this and asked him to at least try to stop, but it's still the same. What do I do? That's signed Surrounded by War in Texas. Dear Surrounded, you are more mature than your husband, both emotionally and chronologically. He is still under his mother's thumb, which is why she's so good at pushing his buttons. It is time for you to move for you both to move as far away from his mother's dwelling as possible. If you do, he will have this less exposure to his mother, and you may have peace under your roof once you unplug the phone. And since we uh, have a minute or two, I'm going to let you know about your horoscope if your birthday is today. Today's birthday person is a Scorpio. Um, with a birthday between October 24th and November 21st. And your horoscope today says, take the initiative and assemble the team. You've got a bright idea. Hopefully, if that is you, that works for you today. And one more real quick short story in Minnesota from the 50 States page. From Minneapolis, the city council and Mayor Jacob Fry have agreed on a new location for a police station to replace the one set on fire in 2020 in response to the murder of George Floyd by a police officer. Well, that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. Earlier, you heard Deanna Snyder and Scott Splavik. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.